Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, great to, great to spend another day with you guys here. And uh, I just want to say I so appreciate um, this community. And um, I've known Bethany for quite some time. Uh, we're a spiritual daughter, son of Lou. And so we originally got connected around the call events and our relationship to Lou. And I so appreciate uh, the, the calling that, that Bethany has to administrate um, the advancement of God's um, government in the earth through prayer and through proclamation and through declaration and, um, and just the strength in her leadership and in her calling. And, um, and so in just in being with you guys, um, you know, part of what I feel and part of what I'm sensing is that much of this burden of human trafficking, sex trafficking that we're talking about this weekend and that many of you guys have, have been exposed to through seeing Nefarious um, will be carried out um, in terms of a response in the place of prayer. And I think that is huge. When you look at um, not just the mission of Moses to lead people out of Egypt and into encounter with God, but you look at his methodology, it was walked out through a place of deep dependency upon God expressed in a life of prayer. I mean, I actually... Outside of Jesus, I don't think there's anyone in the Bible who has a more remarkable prayer life than Moses. And so when we talk about the issue of sex trafficking, we, it's important for us, for us to understand it from uh, many different sides. And one of the most important aspects of the way that we understand sex trafficking is the spiritual component, the spiritual um, way that this is being fueled. And we have to confront the spiritual nature of slavery um, through the spiritual means of prayer, right? I mean, we have to, like, like Jesus said, you have to bind the strong man before you can plunder the house. And so I'm so uh, grateful for the opportunity to connect with and synergize with you guys as a house of prayer. Um, I remember the first time speaking on this um, back in Kansas City, Mike immediately came up and said, I want the prayer rooms of the earth to be filled um, with incense arising before the Lord on behalf of this issue. And so uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to connect with you guys, just even in the way of mobilizing um, prayer on behalf of this issue. Um, last night we talked about, as Bethany mentioned, we talked about confronting the facilitating culture. Um, and so the way we confront the spiritual realm of this is through the spiritual means of prayer. The way that we confront the facilitating culture is through the power of creative media to shift the culture. And then some of you guys came up to me and talked about um, going to school for this and, and becoming lawyers and working in other aspects of this in which we confront the systems of oppression and the system of, of perpetration and injustice and exploitation um, through the rule of law. And so there's that component of it too. But whatever um, sphere that you uh, feel called to respond to this issue in, whether it's in the realm, as Bethany uh, mentioned, in the realm of giving or in the realm of prayer or in the realm of shifting culture through the power of creative media or actually fighting the systems of um, injustice um, through uh, rule of law and, and that type of thing, um, one of the key things that I think is going to be really important for all of us as we move forward in this movement is to be able to persevere through the midst of incredible um, challenges, obstacles, and difficulties. And so that's really what I want to talk to you guys about 
um, tonight, um, this afternoon, is this issue of perseverance. Um, each uh, year, it seems like God downloads kind of one primary message to me for that year that I just kind of brew on and, um, and uh, wrestle with and think on and meditate on and contemplate. And this whole past year, the thing that God has really been speaking to me about is the issue of perseverance. In other words, how do we do this for 20 years? Like, how do we not just allow this issue to subside when the, when the buzz wanes, but we actually remain steadfast and resolved in persevering um, to combat this injustice, because that is what it's going to require. And so I want to provide you this afternoon with a biblical perspective of this subject of perseverance, this issue of perseverance. Um, you can open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. And uh, as you turn there, I'm just going to highlight this teaching. A few years ago, the, the message that God put on my heart for that year, <laughs> it's a good thing that I'm not um, like a Bible pastor, teacher, whatever, because if I had to come up with a message every week, I don't know what I would do. I get one a year. Uh, <laughs> but um, the message that he put on my heart that year was uh, <laughs> encountering the love of God in a culture of lust. Um, before we can um, confront this issue, it's important to deal with our own issues. And um, I wouldn't even say before, but it's, it's part of the whole equation and one of the primary things is uh, the spirit of lust. Back in 1952, um, December of 1952, with the publication of the first Playboy magazine, we saw um, the birth of the industrialization of lust, the emergence of an industry that was completely built upon capturing the lustful gaze of men. And since that time, we have seen the emergence of a culture of voyeurism which is incredibly problematic because Jesus said that adultery is looking at a woman to lust at her. So that's, there's some really, you know, that's challenging in our day and in our age. And God really began to speak to me about how do we, um, how do we overcome the assault of lust in our culture. The atmosphere is so charged by seduction. And so this message is on that. I really want to encourage you guys um, to, to get this message uh, if, you can, if you're able to. And uh, I'll just give this one if somebody, if somebody wants it. Um, there you go. Oh. How do I get this thing to go up? Technical difficulties. Oh, there we go. Are you good? Yeah. Um, so Isaiah 40, verse 31. We're all familiar with this verse, but let's just go ahead and read it. Um, it says, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Um, I, you know, I don't know anybody that, that reads this verse and goes, I don't want that. You know, there's nobody that goes like, I don't want to rise up with, mount, with wings like eagles, you know. But we all want, right, what's in this verse. We want to soar with the Lord. Um, but it's the waiting on the Lord. <laughs> That's the hard part. And uh, I really want to zoom in on that reality um, this afternoon as we um, talk about confronting this issue of slavery and, and how to, to persevere. 
Um, so let me just pray for us. Father, we just thank you again for our time together this afternoon. And Lord, we ask that you would breathe upon our hearts um, with a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the name of Jesus. That you would illuminate your word to us, God. And that you would equip us and energize us, Lord, to um, persevere in the fight to end slavery in our generation. In the name of Jesus, amen. When I was uh, 18 or 19 years old, I was uh, enrolled in college. I was taking some film classes. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And uh, we had a short break. And my friend and I went up to visit my brother and another friend who were living about four hours north of us. We were in California, and they were up in San Luis Obispo, and we were down in Orange County. And we, when we go up to visit them, we're just spending some time together. We got, decided to go out and to rent a guy flick. So we rent Navy SEALs, this movie called Navy SEALs. We watched this movie, and after watching this movie, we uh, basically all knew what we were going to do with our life. Um, it was, I mean, it was like a really like serious thing, like, this is it. We have found our calling. We are going to become Navy SEALs. There was just this one problem. I have a desperate fear of heights. <laughs> And so I knew at some juncture I was probably going to be having to jump out of a plane or do something crazy that had to do with heights. So, um, so my brother says, that's okay. Um, I can cure your ill. Uh, we, can go, um, we can go to this cliff jumping spot. It's uh, way deep into the forest, and, uh, and you know, we can go out there and do some cliff jumping or whatever. So we all jump in my truck. I had just bought a new truck, and we take off deep into this forest, and we arrive at this cliff jumping spot. And as we get there, there's, um, there's like several different heights that you can jump from. And there's trails leading up to different places to jump and different pools and so on and so forth. So we first pull up and there's a trail that goes up over here, way up to this cliff jumping spot over there. So my friend and I get out of the car and we look at this and we trail and we go, you know what, let's just, let's just scale this rock face over here. Um, and see if and just climb our way up it. I mean, because we were so energized. We just had this like intense, you know, rush of adrenaline and testosterone and just, it was, so we're like, so without thought, we decided to, because scale this rock face, it's about 80 feet high, uh, no training, no rock climbing experience, no ropes, and it was just pure adrenaline, so we start climbing up this rock face, and we get about halfway up, so we're about 40 feet up, when suddenly we discover that there's nothing else left to grab onto. So we can't get any higher. But the grooves that we uh, put our finger, hands into getting up were so small that we couldn't get back down. When I say vertical, I'm talking like Mission Impossible 2, like this. <laughs> I'm talking about like we, it was vertical. It was suddenly, I made the, the mistake of, the cardinal mistake of any climber, which I didn't know was the cardinal mistake at this time. And, and I looked down. <laughs> And, and I'm paralyzed with fear. I'm like, oh, dear God, if I fall from here, I'm going to die. This is serious. And it wasn't funny at the time. It's funny now, thinking back on it, it was not funny. And we're holding on for dear life. My friend's over here, and I'm here, and I'm literally paralyzed with fear. If I fall, I am going to die. <laughs> And my friend finally figures out that if we climb about 15 feet laterally, we can jump into a pool that's about three feet deep. <laughs> but it's our only way out. So after being on this wall for about 15 minutes, we start to climb laterally. 
we make it over this pool, and we jump in, and we survive, thank God. We had uh, bruised tailbones from that experience. Um, but it was intense. And what happened is I had this intense burst of inf- uh, inspiration that led to this inflated thinking that I could actually climb this rock face with no training, no ex- experience, no equipment, no preparation at all whatsoever. This wasn't faith. This was delusional. <laughs> I had kind of like this Messiah warrior complex you know, going on where I just thought I could do this thing. But it wasn't about halfway up till I realized that I don't have a clue what I'm doing, and it almost cost me my life. So I just I say this story kind of tongue-in-cheek. It's kind of a funny story. But I say it to illustrate the predicament that many of us find ourselves in, um, not just in life, but in our fight to um, end this issue of slavery, um, social injustice, um, if you want to look at it that way. We face these impossible situations, Situations where it seems like there's no way up, no way down. Um, situations where it feels like we're stuck, we're alone, we're isolated. And uh, in that place, afraid and confused. And so, um, when we talk about this in the context of this issue of human slavery, human trafficking, sexual slavery, on the one hand, we have the issue itself which is enormous, right? We have this massive issue of human trafficking. This is one of the most powerful and complex systems of corruption and evil that is holding the entire planet hostage. And when I think of this, I think of three really main forces that are holding the planet hostage. And human slavery is one of those forces. So we are talking about the large-scale mass trafficking of human beings all across the globe. This perpetrator system is deeply embedded within our world, as we talked about that uh, last night. But again, we're not talking about rare instances of aberrant crime. We are talking about pervasive socioeconomic, political, cultural, technological, criminal, and spiritual forces that embed human trafficking in our world. I've heard it said before that we will be the generation that sweeps away slavery as though it's, you know, a bit of, you know, a bit of dust that just needs to be swept into a dustbin. Can I just say that there will be no sweeping away of slavery? This is deeply embedded in our world. It is deeply entrenched in our world. Historically, slavery has always been embedded within the cultures of its time. Wilberforce's legislation to abolish slavery was voted down 11 times before it was finally passed um, 20 years later. Um, Lincoln faced such fierce opposition to the abolition of slavery that invoked a civil war resulting in the deaths of 600,000 people. 600,000 people died to free 4 million slaves. Abolition is not cheap. It is deeply costly. Lincoln once said, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me, the wisdom of everyone around me, seemed totally insufficient. You can just picture him in that situation, 
confronted with the complexities of slavery of his time, going, how do we overcome this incredible, heinous injustice and oppression of human life? And he goes, I don't have the answer. You know, right? I'm searching everything within myself. And, and, there's, and, I, and in doing all the math, I don't know the equation. And I'm looking at everybody else around me, and they don't know it either. And you can just feel the intensity of the place that this quote is birthed out of, that he felt literally driven to his knees. On the other hand, so we have this massive issue of human trafficking. And then on the other hand, we have the multitude of situations that we each run into in our own personal lives that present us with seemingly insurmountable uh, obstacles. We run into a lack of resources and finances. We run into a lack of vision. We have relational conflicts and disappointments. Um, we run into heartbreak, and we run into all kinds of of discouragement. So there's all these personal complexities and challenges that we hit on the way. On the one hand, the massive issue. On the other hand, all of our personal challenges. But these obstacles that we face, combined with the impact, the, the issue at hand, they impact us deeply. And we cannot be naive to that. That is one of the worst things that we can be. We need to know what is likely to happen to us in the course of our fight to end slavery, to end human trafficking. When we face impossible obstacles, we confront our own limitations. As that quote from Lincoln in, uh, uh, implied, we confront our own limitations. We confront um, our, vulner uh, our limitations, and in that place, our vulnerabilities become exposed and all of our ambivalences come rushing in. I'm talking about our uncertainties, our fears, our hesitations, our doubts, our conflicting feelings about the thing that we are doing. They come rushing in. And then we realize we are not the purists we imagine ourselves to be. Now this process is actually cr crucial because it produces in us a deep humility, and it exuviates all of the superficial props like idealism and romanticism and heroism and ambition and the performance spirit. But confronting our limitations can also ignite an incendiary keg of toxic emotions like fear, offense, cynicism, and anger. And it's in these times that we uh, become in danger of becoming polarized. We can either become deflated or we become inflated. We either want to turn our back and run in despair and futility and bitterness, or we want to take control, becoming tyrannical and dominating and forceful. And oftentimes, it's actually our reaction to uh, the obstacles that we encounter that are more detrimental to us than the actual obstacles themselves. The other thing that happens is that our proximity to this issue also begins to affect us. You guys have experienced that, being here in Boston, being at kind of the epicenter of humanism. You know, when you live in proximity to something like that, it begins to affect you. Where am I? Sorry. <laughs> I'm getting carried away here. 
We are all affected by the thing that we are trying to transform. Again, this is a deep, complex, perpetrator system when we're talking about slavery. It's really important that we understand the nature of the beast. It is a system of betrayal, of deception, of coercion, of manipulation, of violence, of perversion, of greed, of exploitation. That is the nature of this system, and it is fueled by ancient forces of evil that haunt, seduce, brutalize, and traumatize. If the system of slavery had a consciousness, it would want us to be intimidated by it. It would want us to feel demoralized. And when we work in this field, when we sign up to say, we are going to combat this thing, this injustice, this issue, um, when we do that, it can, uh, we can feel small and we can feel insignificant next to this massive behemoth. Have you guys ever felt that way before? When you, talk, when, you, when you confront this big, it feels like, oh my goodness, when you really begin to wrap your mind around it, you begin to feel so small. And in that place, our faith can be shaken. We can become negatively sexual. We can suffer secondary PTSD and vicarious trauma. There are all kinds of ways that we can become affected by the very thing that we are trying to transform. The impact of combating trafficking, combating slavery, combating injustice can quickly lead us to a place of burnout because we are simply not designed to carry toxic emotions. We all experience negative emotions, right? We experience fear. We experience discouragement, but we're not designed to carry those things. We're not designed to carry anger on an ongoing basis. And we're not designed to live with trauma. People do not burn out from doing the same thing over and over again for a long time. They burn out from carrying toxic emotions that they aren't designed to carry. That is the place that burnout comes from. The snare of the enemy is to seduce our compassionate hearts into becoming overwhelmed by our own sense of caring to the degree that we become derailed from the emotional um, plumb line of God in our life, from the emotional, spiritual, and psychological plumb line of God in our life. The initial burst of compassion or inspiration that we felt when we first learned of human trafficking, is not enough to sustain us for the years of committed, sacrificial devotion to the work of abolition that will be required. So even as this buzz of human trafficking begins to wane, the problem remains, and like our predecessors who have gone before us, Lincoln and Wilberforce and others, we have need of perseverance. As I was thinking about this issue of perseverance, I began to reflect on the life of Moses and what equipped him to persevere through all the trials and tribulations. I mean, the guy went through it, right? I mean, he went through it. Um, I began to think about all those things that he, he, that he went through um, and the things that he faced in delivering the Israelites out of Egypt. 
And what really came to mind is that there is no one who has gone on a greater mission impossible, if you will, than Moses. And, and the title of this message, by the way, is Perseverance Overcoming the Impossible. So there is no one that I can think of who has been on a greater mission impossible than Moses. No, not even Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> Ethan Hawke or whatever his name is in the movie. Let the reader understand. Um, <laughs> Exodus, um, in Exodus 3, there, there's this crazy verse. God tells Moses, like, you know, go, um, he sends, he's sending him on this mission. Go tell the leaders of Israel that you're going to deliver them out of Egypt. They've been in slavery for 400 years. Imagine how crazy that sounds. 400 years. I mean, can you even fathom the sociological impact and the mindsets of the people living in a system of brainwashing and control and manipulation for 400 years? And now you're going to tell them that you're here to set them free, right? Okay, so this is the mission that God sends them on. And you're going to go, and you're going to go before the, the, you know, Pharaoh and all this and that. And, but here's what God says to him in verse 19. He says, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. <laughs> so God tells him to go on this mission, but then he also tells him that, the, that, that it's not going to happen, right? He's sending him on a mission impossible. Now, there's two situations that I want to uh, highlight um, in terms of impossible situations that Moses confronted. And as we look at these two situations, I want to I highlight Moses' response in these two different situations and what we can learn from them. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, so Genesis, Exodus, book number 2. Uh, I think most of you got that. And... Uh, Chapter 2, verse 11. Okay, so it says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. This is really huge what's happening here. Moses had grown up in the pomp and the privilege of Egyptian royalty, sheltered from the plight of his people. But undoubtedly he had heard how he was saved from the river, escaping the plight of the, of the other newborn Hebrews, uh, boys that were being uh, executed under orders, orders from Pharaoh at that time. And we can imagine how he must have felt seeing the brutal treatment of his people when he finally reached adulthood. What's happening here is Moses is having his awakening. He goes out, and for the first time, he sees the oppression of, of his people. And maybe he saw it before, but he didn't see it, right? I mean, can you all identify with that? Like the first time that you found out that human trafficking was going on, how you felt? And you know, we'd all probably heard about it, but we hadn't heard about it. We hadn't seen. It's like the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 11 about the story of the Good Samaritan, where he's going on the path, and this person is beaten and left for dead, and the religious people just pass by. They're just like, oh, well. <laughs> and they just like keep going. You know, but this one guy stops and this is what the nerve said, that he sees him. And there's this acknowledgement, there's this seeing, there's this identification, there's this awareness, this awakening of the plight of this person. And then, so that's what's happening to Moses is 
to, uh, sorry, to Moses here. So he's having this awakening, and it says, um, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. He sees the slave master beating the Hebrew, one of his brethren. So Moses begins to step into the place of solidarity to begin to identify with the plight of his brethren. I remember when I was in Las Vegas, and we were preparing for the call Las Vegas, and I was, prepa- and I was praying that morning for the victims of human trafficking. And I remember the Holy Spirit spoke to me. God spoke to me, and he says, stop calling them victims. These are your people. There's a place in our culture and in our society today, we talked about some of this, where we relegate issues of sex trafficking, relegate issues of sexual violence, relegate issues of rape to this category of women's issues, right? It's a way for us to alleviate ourselves as men of the responsibility of that. But this is as much a men's issue as it is a women's issue. In fact, it's probably more so a men's issue because the fact is we could end sex trafficking today if men stopped purchasing women. And so there is a place for us to begin to step into that place of solidarity with our sisters. And that is what God is calling us to, to stand in solidarity with our sisters as our sisters, as our daughters, as our mothers, realizing that we, there is a self-interest that we have in, as men in the liberation, protection, uh, and empowerment of women in our culture. But Moses steps into this place of identification, and it says, verse 12, So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that no one was coming, or that no one was around, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. <laughs> he kills the slave master. Now, again, for most of us that have, you know, maybe it was the first time you saw Nefarious or uh, some other time that you first found out about this human tra- issue of human trafficking, I-, I know that many of you guys can identify with that feeling, right? You want to kill. <laughs> you want to kill, like... Where, you know, where's the trafficker at? Or, you know, I'm going to go to that brothel and kill everybody and rescue the girls out. Like, I had visions of myself throwing girls over my shoulder and running out of brothels that are burning in the background. And, but, I mean, your mind just goes there because of the outrage of it. But we don't actually do it. (laughs) We don't actually kill the slave masters. At least I hope not. Um. This tells us something about the character of Moses. He actually goes and he kills the slave master and then he buries the guy in the desert. This is like something out of a Martin Scorsese film. <laughs> right? Those mafia flicks where they anyways. It says, and then he went out the second day, behold the two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? And then verse 14 it says, Then he said, Uh, So the guy who's trying to help out says, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And now here's what it says. So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, which is a desert region east of the Sinai Peninsula on the other side of the Gulf of Arabia, for those of you that are into geography. Um, Five things here, though, that I want to point out. Just five things real quick. Number one, Moses is trying to help his brethren, okay? Number two, they all turn on him. Anybody that's been working in the anti-trafficking field for a while can identify with this. They turn on him. 
Number three, Pharaoh seeks to kill Moses. Number four, Moses is afraid, it says. And number five, Moses flees. Okay, so just remember those five points if you can. If not, I'll highlight them again. Now, the next time that we see Moses in an impossible situation is at the Red Sea. At this point, he's led close to three million men, women, and children out of hostile territory, out, literally out from under the control of the world superpower of the day. He's an 80-year-old Hebrew man with a stick <laughs> leading three million people out from under the world superpower of the day, okay? And now they find themselves suddenly pinned in at the Red Sea with Pharaoh bearing down on them again. I mean, the scene could not get any more dramatic. In fact, this, is, this whole scenario has become a classic convention of modern story structure in which the protagonist appears to have achieved victory, but oh no, it's a trap. And now he has to draw on something deep within himself, something he has learned in the dark night of the soul to overcome the impossible situation. Our conventions of modern storytelling were stolen from the book of Exodus. <laughs> right? Gladiator. Remember Gladiator? He's, they're gonna, they, they have a plan. He's going to get free. This is awesome. And then, oh no, it's a trap, right? Remember? I mean, this is so common. It, Braveheart, all the great movies had the same thing. They stole it from Exodus, stole it from the life of Moses. Where am I? Okay, let's read the narrative. Exodus 14. Just skip over a few, verse, few pages if you want to. To Exodus chapter 14. Okay, so we'll just read the narrative real quick. It says, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, you have taken us the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians, to remain in slavery than that we should die out here in the wilderness. The Israelites had very mixed feelings about leaving Egypt. They weren't all just like, oh, come rescue us, Moses, right? They had a lot of ambivalences about this. And it's the same, it was the same way after slavery, slavery was abolished here in the United States. Some of the slaves actually stayed on the plantations they didn't want to be free. There's a lot of ambivalences when detaching from rigid systems of slavery and mind control and exploitation. This is why the Israelites needed these 40 years in the wilderness, literally these three kind of generations to be fully emptied of these mindsets and to be fully emptied of the idol worship, which was really their way of kind of internalizing the ideology of the perpetrator in which they felt that they were unworthy because that's what they were told for 400 years. In many ways, the wilderness journey represents the healing journey for a trafficking survivor. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people now, okay, so... <laughs> 
this whole, you, okay, so the drama is there. They're at the Red Sea, the people. And Moses says to the people, now, how is he going to respond is the big question this time around. How is Moses going to respond post-desert? And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. So Moses, he does. He parts the Red Sea. He lifts up a stick, and he parts a Red Sea. He parts an ocean in front of them. He literally parts an entire ocean. Five things happen here that I want to point out. Number one, Moses is trying to help his brethren. Okay, Remember, just like in the first situation. He's trying to help his brethren. Number two, they all turn on him. Just like in the first situation. Three, Pharaoh seeks to kill him once again. Now here's the difference. Number four, Moses tells the people not to be afraid. And number five, Moses overcomes through faith. Similar circumstances, but in one situation, Moses is running scared. In the other situation, he's overcoming through faith. So what made the difference in the outcome of these two scenarios? Both were impossible situations, but the man was different. Moses had been transformed through his wilderness season. And this offers us a key in terms of how we should understand biblical perseverance. The key to perseverance is not mostly about inspiration or motivation or determination. It's about personal transformation. Tony Robbins ain't going to get you where you need to go. <laughs> right? And we don't need like a, like a self-help conference. We, we, right? It's inspiration will only take us so far. In one scenario, Moses had all the incentive, but he had none of the internal equity. And that is something that you cannot buy. You can't buy internal equity at a conference. <laughs> that is something that has to be forged on the inside Moses had to be deprogrammed from Egyptian influence. He had to be broken of self-reliance. And he had to get his spirit and his soul aligned with the heart and the DNA of God. There's two things that I want to point out about Moses that occurred during his uh, wilderness transformation. Number one is that he went from finding his sense of self-worth and his sense of identity in what he could do outwardly to who he was inwardly. And in what he could do for God to who he was before God. And being a deliverer to being one who needed to be delivered. In the first situation, Moses is reactionary, he's impulsive, he's self-confident, and he's overly assertive. Here's what Art Katz writes about this young Moses. Though Moses was called of God, he was not yet qualified to be a deliverer. He lacked the fear of God, the awareness of God. His whole posture was looking horizontal. 
He saw and he acted, but there is no consideration of looking up. Merely because we see something that needs to be rectified is not the justification for doing it. There is nothing more opposed to the purposes of God than the well-meaning intentions of men that men perpetrate in their own human and religious zeal. Human nature is expedient and utilitarian and wants to get it done now. But our way is not his way, nor are our thoughts his thoughts. Ultimately, Moses comes out of the wilderness as a man leaning on his beloved, completely broken of his self-reliance. Now, Moses' prayers and interactions with God, as you read the narrative of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you read through these passages of Scripture, uh, and you see these prayers and these interactions with God, they give us uh, uh, insight into the depth of Moses' transformation. Moses was so far removed from the Kool-Aid of being this great leader that he goes, I don't even want to lead unless your presence goes with us. Imagine the opportunity that you've been given to lead the biggest megachurch on the planet. And he goes, I don't even want it. I don't even want to be the man. Now, to understand the power of that, you really have to understand the context of what's happening here. In Exodus, Exodus 33, I'll just read this to you. If you could turn there if you want. In Exodus 33, verse 1 to 3, you got to hear this context just real quickly to really understand the power of Moses' heart posture before the Lord. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart from here. Uh, depart and go from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send my angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and all these people. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, and by the way, I just won't be going with you. That's what God is saying. I'm releasing you into the fullness of my promises over your life, your lineage, and your people for land, prosperity, safety, fullness. But there's just one thing. I won't be going with you. Now, I think a lot of people would settle for this partial reward, this partial inheritance. Now, a lot of people are living, I feel like, nobody would actually say this, right? Nobody would say, well, yeah, I'd sign up for that. But functionally, practically, that is what we are saying by virtue of the way that we live our lives. A lot of people are living for a nice, comfortable retirement. And in that sense, um, that's what's being offered here. Um, back in 2004, um, a girl named Kaylee Stevens had a dream with me in it. And I'm gonna, I just want to read this dream to you real quickly because I feel like it helps illuminate um, this passage of Scripture and what the situation that Moses was confronting. And, and it, the dream may come across as self-aggrandizing, and that's not the way that, I'm, that I am trying to read it to you. I believe that God was putting a check in my spirit of our propensity as people to be satisfied with a partial inheritance and run off doing our own thing instead of waiting on God to receive the fullness. 
In the dream, she says, I saw Benji and a group of people praying in an airport. It looked like the group was about to enter into a new city or country. As Benji led them in prayer, members of the group began to receive small gifts. After they would receive these small gifts, they would be satis- become satisfied and stop praying. Although Benji was also given a gift, he would not cease praying. The others urged him to stop praying as they had already received gifts, but Benji would not stop. Hours passed, and, you, and Benji finally got up from his place of prayer. In his hands, he held two new gifts, a golden scepter in one hand and a glowing cloud in the other. Now we can go, he said. He stated to the group. <clears throat> and she said, I feel like the Lord showed me that the golden scepter was God's given authority, and the glowing cloud was his manifest presence. And I feel like God was putting a vision in front of me to say, this is the propensity of human nature. To, to pray until you receive some, you know, to sign up until you've received some measure of kind of the superficial inheritance, partial inheritance, superficial gratification, and then to sort of give up on the dream and the vision of prayer and entering into the fullness. And he's putting that, this vision in front of me, Benji, in the midst of the coming and the going, the airport, so to speak, in the midst of all the busyness, do not give up on the play, vision of prayer. You have to walk this thing out on your knees. We have to fight this injustice on our knees because it's hard for a man to stumble when he's walking on his knees, right? We have to walk it out in that place of the presence and the power of God and surrender to him. But this scenario sets us up, um, sets up an occasion for us to see the heart of Moses. How is he going to respond to this invitation from God? God says you can go up. You can go into the land flowing. You can go have the, 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 claim the promises of God. A land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to defeat your enemies before you. What's Moses going to do? Right? And we get a seed now. A window into the heart of Moses. That illuminates the depth of his transformation from his wilderness season. The narrative picks up. Then Moses said to the Lord. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me go. Let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Verse 13, he says, now, therefore, I pray, if indeed I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. Moses is saying that this is about more than a functional mandate. He's saying, um, I actually want to know you. It's not just an issue of getting marching orders. Verse 14. And, and then the Lord responds to him. And, and the Lord is basically saying here, okay, Moses, I see your heart. I see where your heart is. And now God says to him, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, most of us at that point would say, okay, all right. That's good enough for me, right? Not Moses. He keeps going. Let's see, where is he? He said, uh, verse 15. Okay, he goes, Moses goes, uh, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. In other words, don't lead us into the promised land. What is the point if you are not with us? I didn't spend 40 years in the wilderness so I could go do my own thing again. He wants to walk this out in deep intimacy 
with God, in relationship with God, in connection to God, in the presence of God. He goes on crying out for the presence of God, crying out for the glory of God. God promises, okay, I'll show you my glory. In verse 34, we pick up and then it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. How would you like to have God show up to preach the knowledge of God to you? I mean, that's what's happening here. God shows up to proclaim the name of the Lord. And the Lord plasts before him and proclaims the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Remember, Moses, you thought you were a failure, but I am a merciful God. This is so powerful. I mean, when you just think, Think about it. You have to get lost in the narrative of Moses' life because it's so powerful, it's so beautiful, and it's such a model of the way that we should be walking out our own lives. But here's what I want to say about all this. It's just so easy to get lost in, in Moses. Just If I am not rooted and grounded in my core identity as a beloved son of God, I will always be trying to prove my worth before God with outward displays of accomplishment, but inevitably running into my own weakness. When I derive my identity from what I can do for God instead of who I am before God, I begin to take on a burden of responsibility I can never fulfill because I do not contain the resources within myself to overcome the impossible situations that I will encounter in my life, the impossible situations that I will face. And therein lies the difference between humanistic activism and faith-based mission. It's not until all the great things that I was going to do for God get kicked out from under me and I discover that he still loves me in that place that I can begin to walk out the fullness of my calling. He went from the second thing that happens, you know, the first thing we got and got detached from. <laughs> he went from uh, the shift in his identity. That's the first thing that happened in this wilderness transformation. The second thing that happens is he went from believing that he was in control to believing that God was in control. He went from see, act, do to see, wait, do. He went from ready, fire, aim to ready, aim, fire. Um, earlier this year, I was reading my son Judah this uh, children's book on the life of Moses. And I love reading children's books because they take, um, some of the com- take out some of the complexity of Scripture. And they just boil it down to its most simple form. And in the first situation that we, t- that we talked about where Moses is trying to set his brethren free, there's, there's a phrase that's used in this children's book. And, and in the children's book, Moses says, I will protect you. But then in the second scenario, there's a phrase that they use. And the language that Moses used in the second scenario is, God will protect you. And there's a fundamental shift from, I am going to do this thing, to, God, you are going to do this thing. Now, obviously, this is a simple lesson. We all know it, right? Like, God is in control. But do we really know it? Are we really able to entrust the things that we care the deepest about to God? Are we really able to stand at the Red Sea and declare that the battle belongs to the Lord when our life and the life of those that we are responsible for are at stake? 
I remember we got a check um, at Exodus Cry for um, $150,000. And the uh, independent accounting office that we were using lost the check. Um, And after several weeks, we got the situation figured out. And um, six months later, this same donor gives us a check for $250,000. And once again, the accounting office loses the check. <laughs> now, they had, never lost, they had never lost another check. They didn't lose the $10 check, right? <laughs> right. The only two checks they ever lost totaled $400,000. <laughs> they lose a $250,000 check, okay? And now the donor tells me, okay, um, I don't know if we're going to be able to replace the check because I'm not sure how the board is going to respond to this. They may feel that this was a sign from the Lord that we're just supposed to hold back from giving at this time. So I'm, I remember I'm stuck in traffic in L.A. with nothing to do except think. And my mind is just going. And I'm just plagued with anxiety. And I'm just thinking, and I'm so infuriated, you moron. You know, I'm just like, how could you lose this check? And, and I'm so just stressed out by this whole situation. And then... You know, just the thought came back to me of, like, the battle belongs to the Lord. Like, and I don't want to completely disconnect, but at the same time, it's like, it's not mine. Exodus cry is not mine. These people are not mine. This, this mission is, you know, not mine. It belongs to the Lord, and sure, I have a place in it. But at the end of the day, I have to be able to hold it open before the Lord. I have to trust him with the monetary things if I'm going to trust him with real human lives. And this is what happened with Moses. He went from believing that he was in control, that he could protect them. That is a place of anxiety to believing that God was in control and that God God could protect them. We are called to the wilderness. We are called to the wilderness because we are called to be overcomers. We are called to persevere. And God knows that we cannot do it apart from his transforming grace in our lives, reconstituting our inner man, aligning us with his heart and aligning us with his DNA. Perseverance is born out of transformation. And transformation is wrought in the wilderness. The call to the wilderness, and I'll bring it to a close. Now, the call to the wilderness is a call to wait upon the Lord. The wilderness is a posture more than it is a place. Right? We don't have to go to the Sinai. You know, we don't have to go there. It's a posture of heart. It's a posture of waiting on God. I remember when I first got out to Kansas City, um, 11 years ago, and God called me to a 40-day water fast. And, um, and I was in a season leading up to this where I was so filled up with hyper-religious activity and just constantly doing, 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 doing. I got saved, and I got shot out of a cannon <laughs> and found myself doing all these things for God. And unbeknownst to me was building so much of my identity in all of those things that I was doing for God. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't malicious. It was just the byproduct of the way that I was responding to God's invitation and call on my life. And I remember going into this fast, and 
uh, several days into it, I just began to become so weak. And the month before, I had done a 21-day fast. I was doing these crazy seasons of fasting. I thought every fast that was called was for me personally. And so I already had lost all this weight. And so now I'm in a 40-day fast, water fast, and I'm so weak. And I'm walking around completely gaunt. I decided to take a Nazarite vow, so I shaved my head and it's growing back in like rat hair. I'm growing this beard. I'm completely emaciated. I look like a Holocaust victim. I'm not kidding. My mom was terrified. She's like, Benji, please, for the love of God, eat something. It was really bad. But there's this spirit of condemnation over me that was so thick and so heavy. And it was really just wrestling with, you know, if I'm not doing all these things for God. And, and just this thing came over me where I just started to feel my barrenness as a human being. And I started to feel this sense of worthlessness and this sense of condemnation. I remember I would open up the Bible. Like I would try to read the prophets, do the spiritual thing, and read the prophets with no understanding. And I would literally read Jeremiah and I would personalize everything he was saying. So when he's talking to apostate Israel that was in, you know, demon worship and sacrificing to idols, like, those rebukes, I was personalizing all of those rebukes. The feeling of condemnation and heartache and heaviness and worthlessness was so stinking intense. And then I could barely sleep at night. The night seasons were so dark, and this is perpetuating. And I remember that I'm, I'm laying there one day, and I literally can barely walk, so I'm just laying there all day by myself. <laughs> and... And I'm like, I'm going to read a comfort passage. <laughs> and I go to Psalm 23. Because the other book I was reading was, um, I was reading Jeremiah, and I was reading Fire Within by Thomas Dubay. If you've ever read Fire Within, okay, if you haven't read it, just understand this. It took Mike Bickle, the most intense human being on the planet, three years to get through this book. That's how intense it is. It's about the transformational prayer lives of St. John of the Cross and the dark night of the soul. And they're, I mean, these people that were like, just, it's, it's, <laughs> so needless to say, I felt completely worthless in light of these other people, okay? So I'm reading Psalm 23, and here's the thing that, I mean, it just the Lord spoke to me so clearly. I will make you lie down in green pastures. And the Lord was saying, I mean, I just, there was such a comfort that came from knowing that at least God is the one that's orchestrating this, you know. And, uh, and then it was a few days later. I remember I was on the 17th day in this fast. I had been in 11 days of solitude. My mom calls me on the phone. And in the course of conversation, I'll never forget, my mom says to me, um, and it's just real simple, but just the way that it hit my spirit, she said, Benji, I just want to tell you that God is so pleased with you. And I'll never forget that moment because it was the first time in my life that I heard the words of the Father speak over me. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But it wasn't just that he spoke that to me. It was in the context in which he spoke it to me. He goes, I'm going to kick out all these other props 
all the things, ways that you're finding value and relating. I'm going to kick all those things out from under you till you realize the depth of your own depravity apart from me so that you could know that in that place, not only do I love you, but I delight in you and I am pleased with you. It's that place of waiting on the Lord that transformation can happen in our lives. Art Katz says this about this reality. He says, there's no man more qualified than the one who believes in his deepest heart that he is without qualification. The whole preliminary work of God is to disqualify us before we can be qualified. The thing I want to encourage us with today is not just to push through our trials, our tribulations, and our possible circumstances with dry route determination. Perseverance is not just about doing the same thing over and over again with a bad spirit. Perseverance is victorious and it requires humility as much as it does determination. The victims of human trafficking do not need bitter, volatile, angry, easily offended, humanistic activists. They need compassionate and temperate sons and daughters who know and trust and wait on their God. From God's perspective, our success is not mostly measured by what we do, but by who we become. How do we persevere through, this, through the impossible? Through personal transformation that roots us and grounds us in the God of the possible. It is not about the size of the obstacle, but the condition of our heart and about the quality of our spirit. Because nothing can stand before those who know and trust their God, not a mountain, not a sea. This fight will not be easy, but it will be worth it. Would you guys stand with me? Isaiah 40, 31. Let's just, let's just uh, posture our hearts in an attitude of prayer and contemplation before the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint.